0: I smoke cigarettes, too. I know that's wrong, but hey, what can you do, right? They're getting expensive, aren't they? Yeah. I live in New York City, eight bucks a pack. Yeah. Every time I buy a pack, I'm thinking for another two, I could be smoking crack. (laughs) But there are times when you need a cigarette. Like after you make love. After you make love to a beautiful woman or a confused young man, you need a cigarette. Don't make hot love and go, woo, that was amazing. Would you like some Skittles? Uh, how about a Jolly Rancher? Give me an onion, a shoelace, and a Mr. Coffee, and I'll make you some hobo chili.
1: Now, that's a good way to start a podcast. little Dave Attell from my favorite comedy album, Skanks for the Memories, back in 2003. My name is Tony Mazer. I am the host of the Check Your Brain podcast. I appreciate you for uh, listening. To this, If you stumbled upon this, you entered the keywords stand-up comedy podcast, and you happen upon here, well, welcome. I mean, the podcast is not all about stand-up comedy, certainly. It's all over the place if you go back in my history. Again, if you stumbled upon this, uh, hit the like button, give me a five-star rating. And if you want more episodes like this and a lot of my solo stuff, it's another solo episode today. Next week, we'll be, we have a guest. In the next several weeks, I'll have guests, but decided to do a solo episode today. So, if you want more solo stuff from me, go to patreon.com slash Tony for three bucks, five bucks, ten bucks. Those are three different tiers. I give you three different uh, levels of how, how to consume my content videos, guest access, extra podcasts, everything. So, if you like this podcast and you want more from me, why would you? I understand. But go to patreon.com slash Tony I played the Dave Attell clip there, and I've got a bunch of other clips here in today's podcast. Little Again, a little different from what I normally talk about here. And uh, just last week, I celebrated 10 years, a full decade, of doing stand-up comedy. And I want to tell you a little bit about my journey, but it's not just a whole me podcast. I'm going to play comedians that I admire, comedians that I've worked with, my love of stand-up comedy, my love-hate relationship with stand-up comedy, my mostly hate—my <laughs> hatred of a lot of comedians. Those are kind of the things I want to get into in the podcast and why I don't love it as much as I used to and why I don't crave getting on stage the way I did in 2014 through 2016. Get into all of that on today's podcast, but I want to start from the beginning about who I admired as a stand-up comedian. So about a, I would say a year and a half, maybe two years ago, I know it was in 2022, I did a podcast called My Mount Rushmore of Comedy. And I had a couple of people going, really, that's an interesting list. It's different from what normal people would have. And when people put out comedy lists, you basically get two criteria. It's either the Zoomers and millennials who think Matt Reif and Kevin Hart are the greatest comedians of all time. And then you get the old guard, the old dogs who say, well, of course, you got to put Lenny Bruce and you got to put Richard Pryor and George Carlin. And I don't know, you throw another name out there, Jerry Seinfeld. And to be honest, when I was a kid, I've talked about this with my buddy, Chad Zumach. When I was raised as when I was a kid in the nineties, we didn't have HBO. We couldn't We didn't. We couldn't afford to pay for HBO. Plus, there was a lot of content on there that is frankly not for children. So I didn't watch HBO specials and Showtime, the Rodney Dangerfield specials, Robert Klein specials, the yearly George Carlin specials. Those were not things for me. Plus, I was not 18. I was not 21. So I couldn't get into an actual comedy club until I was 18 and 21. And when I was a kid and why I was kind of a funny kid, I don't want to say class clown, but I did a little bit of clownish stuff when I was a a kid, that I was more influenced by Three Stooges, by the Marx Brothers, by Looney Tunes. I think Looney Tunes is one of the biggest influences for me with comedy. And then as I got older, I started getting really addicted to stand-up comedians, the art, the craft, crafting a joke, crafting a, 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 a stage persona, your presence. I mean, the whole thing is I I became very obsessed with it, but I also didn't know if I was going to do it. I eventually said, yes, I want to do it. But I had to find some influences. Who are the people that if you go see me on stage, you can say, at least at the time, because there's a thing about finding your voice as a comedian. It takes a while. I'm still trying to find my voice to a certain extent, but I do have a little bit more of a Oh, that's definitely Tony Mazur's material and not a kind of like amalgamation of other people's. Because that's how you start. You're influenced by someone, whether it is George Carlin. So you talk about things like George Carlin would, or you're influenced by a Louis C.K. And you start writing your material that is in a Louis C.K. type until again, you keep at it and you start finding yourself in this. And it takes a while. A lot of people say it takes about a full decade for you to really say that this is uniquely me. Um, but I did need to go for influences. So I'll tell you, I've I been obsessed with stand-up for a long time, didn't think I was funny enough, and didn't know how to really craft a good joke to go on stage. I knew set up punchline, I knew there's something about stage presence, but should I be, if I go, if I become a comic am I going to be a Stephen Wright where I'm just going to go up there and tell non sequiturs and puns and, uh, or am I going to be like a really filthy comedian and drop F bombs all the time and talk about sex and all this like grotesque and taboo sex stuff. What am I going to be? Who am I going to be? And, uh, so I was very influenced when I was thinking about wanting to do stand-up by people like Dave Attell. And so again, I did a whole Mount Rushmore episode because, uh, as much as I admire George Carlin, and I love the fact that Carlin reinvented himself several times. He was the clean-cut comedian in the 60s. Then he grew his hair out and beard, did a bunch of drugs in the 70s. Then by the 80s, he started tapering off a little bit. Rick Moranis on SCTV was doing a George Carlin impression. And it, according to his daughter, Kelly Carlin, it bothered him. It bothered him that he was becoming a parody that people could parody George Carlin, where Rick Moranis is doing this, think about words, like, beats, 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 beats me. Because was, this was during Carlin's Unplaying playing on words bit in the early 80s, and he's like, uh-oh, I have to try to transition here. And then he got angrier and angrier his final, like, 15, 20 years of being on the planet. And I thought it's some of his best stuff. If you go check out... Um, I Think You Are All Diseased, is a it's a, a display, uh, especially the first 15, 20 minutes of it, is tremendous from George Carlin, but not one of my top four comedians. So here's my list. And I did again, I did this in a podcast. I'm trying not to repeat myself. You can go back in time and check out Tony's Mount Rushmore of comedy. But I played Dave Attell. Of course, uh, another one is that we just lost him a couple of years ago, Norm Macdonald.
2: I don't drink myself, you know, it's not because I'm no big guy, I'm just afraid, you know, I fear everything, you know, and uh, so I'm afraid to and stuff, but um, I used to, and now I don't drink, and when you're with people that drink, it doesn't doesn't work out, that's why that designated driver thing, I don't think ever worked out, I see ads for it again, like I think they're trying to resurrect that idea, but it's kind of a flawed notion, you know, it's like, hey Bill, listen, We were wondering if you'd come out with us. Here's the idea. We want to go out and drink, and then we were hoping you'd come with us and not drink. How's that sound to you? We're gonna go to a bunch of different bars and drink, and then you come with us and not drink. Also, we're not gonna be driving. You're gonna pick us up at our different houses Go to a bunch of bars, not drink while we drink, and then drive us all home. How's
1: that sound to you? How's, how's that catch you? What's great about that norm bit right there is it's not the most original concept, but he made it a norm concept. A lot of us have thought about the designated driver, and you're like, oh, well, you feel bad you're at some shithole bar, and... <laughs> I have to sit here drinking Pepsi. All my friends are having a good time trying to hook up with girls and stuff and watching the game and I'm here miserable. So how do you make that bit? How do you make a concept that, again, may not be the most original concept? How do you make it yours? And Norm did it in his way and that's why he was a genius. Absolute genius. I said it with my buddy Chad uh, in the podcast we did earlier this week. There are so many clips of Norm Macdonald doing stand-up and his weekend update and appearances on talk shows. There's so many of them that you almost forget that Norm is dead. There is an ample supply of Norm material if you really want some. Another one, of course, I mentioned Louis C.K. is a classic for me. Anyway, you know,
0: I got kids and uh, (laughs) sort of what I'm trying to say. (laughs) It's hard having kids uh, because it's boring. That really is the hardest part of having kids. Ask any parent, what's the hard part? Is it looking after their health care? Is it making sure that their education? No, it's just being with them on the floor while they be children. It's just they read Clifford the Big Red Dog to you at a rate of 50 minutes a page, and you have to sit there and be horribly proud and bored at the same time. I hate Clifford the Big Red Dog. I hate him. There's 50 books about Clifford the Big Red Dog. 50 books. There's seven books about Narnia that cover the birth and death of a nation and mice with swords and a lion who's a god. They did it in seven books. 50 books about Clifford the Big Red Dog. And they all tell the exact same story. Look how big this dog is.
1: That's it. That is a really, really fun... Again, something else that he takes as his own. Uh, I did get an opportunity to see Louie on his comeback tour. One of his first dates, I believe, when he was coming back, was at the Pittsburgh Improv. And because I have purchased tickets, I have seen comedians... Let's see, who, who have I seen at the Improv? I've seen... I've hung out with Big J Okerson there. Um, I performed at the Pittsburgh Improv as well. Um, but I've also seen... Oof, well, I did see Artie Lang, and he started—his nose bled on stage. It was a bad, bad, bad show. I did see John Lovitz there, and I've seen hmm, Gilbert Gottfried. So I've seen some pretty good shows, but Louis, it was amazing. He's there with Lynn Coplets and Eddie Ift and Tony Woods. It was a great show. And Louis, I, for a guy that just two years before I saw him was selling out theaters and arenas— And here I am in a little comedy club in Homestead, Pennsylvania, and I get an opportunity to see one of my comedic heroes. So I wanted to play a little clip of that. And the final one, and this is one when I started, I wanted to be like the modern day 2015 version of if Bill Hicks was still around.
3: Here is the idea that has made me anonymous in America. If you have children here tonight, and I assume some of you do, I am sorry to tell you this. They are not special. (laughs) oh wait 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 hold on let's don't have any wait 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 don't don't misunderstand me i know a lot of y'all wait wait let's be clear on this i know you think they're special (laughs) i'm aware of that i'm just trying to tell you they're not Do you know that every time a guy comes, he comes 200 million sperm? Did you know that? 200 million sperm. And you mean to tell me you think your child is special? Because one out of 200 million sperm, that load. We're talking one load. Connected. Gee What are the fucking odds? 200. You know what that means? I have wiped entire civilizations off of my chest (laughs) with a
1: gray gym sock. That's another classic bit. Another one that you make your own, and that's another classic album, by the way, Rant in E Minor. If people really want to look into Bill Hicks, uh, not breaking any news, but I, Bill Hicks did more for me when I was starting than George Carlin did. <clears throat> he had pancreatic cancer. He was diagnosed in June of 1993. He was dead by February of 1994, and in that time, from June 93 until he died, he kept putting out—he He recorded two completely separate— Fairly timely, because he brings up stuff going on at the time, the Rodney King riots and Waco, but also timeless, that you can listen as, as sort of a uh, like a time capsule. And it, it was incredible, his work ethic, as he's dying. And then he goes on Letterman, does a great set, and Letterman cuts it, because he didn't want to upset some of his sponsors and standards and practices. So those are my top four. Again, I did a whole episode on Mount Rushmore. I play a lot more clips and stuff. Uh go check that out. So as I was starting to do stand up. Well, actually let me get into why I got into it in the first place. A lot of people have their story who get into doing stand-up. They get in get into it because of some kind of trauma. Maybe they were bullied in high school. They had suicidal thoughts. Maybe their dad died, and dad was a huge stand up comedy fan, and it's like, in honor of my father, I am going to go out and do stand up comedy the reason I did it was uh, I didn't really have anything else going for me. Um, I had recently been let go from a radio station because a caller said the word bullshit on the air, and I did not hear it. And as a part-time producer who was also not well liked at that radio station and by the company and by the bosses, uh, that was their reason. They're like, okay, good. Well, we don't have to buy him out of his contract. We could just tell him, get the hell out of here. Pack up your shit, you're gone. That's what happened, basically. And uh, yeah, <clears throat> so I it was working. I, I needed to find another job. I ended up giving tours because I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I gave tours at the Christmas Story house. You know, the movie, the 1983 classic that's on 24 hours a day on Christmas Day. The Christmas story. Well, the house that they filmed some of the exterior scenes, virtually no interior scenes, is in Cleveland. It's on West 11th and Rowley Avenue. And I had nothing else going on. I've seen the movie about uh, 17,000 times by that point. Figured I'd probably give a little bit of knowledge. So I was giving tours. So I would do these monologues. They would give us a script of talking points to mention. I say, the house was built in such and such and Gene Shepard and Bob Clark, the director of A Christmas Story, were driving around downtown Cleveland. They were trying to find a, a place to film and it just this whole list. And you can tell the people giving the tour would just memorize the talking points. And what I would do is I would look at the talking points, absorb some of them and make it my own. And I would challenge myself that not one tour was going to be the exact same. So I I'm giving the 3 o'clock tour and the 3.30 tour, and I make sure that both of them, maybe I'll end with a little joke and something to wrap it up in the 3 o'clock tour that I'll open with in the 3.30. And then maybe I'll mention a couple of other things. So I had an opportunity for public speaking, have an audience that's pretty captive. They want to hear a little bit more. They want to take their pictures, but they also want to know a little bit about what they're getting into. And there has to be some humor to it. And there were a couple of tour guides at the Christmas Story house who were like, all right, get in, shut up. And the house is this and this, 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 and this. And can you be quiet and get off your phones? And I'm just like, everyone's here for a good time. Let's have a good time. You you, you traveled here from Wichita. You, you traveled here from Boise. And you're passing through on I ninety, and you're like, well, what's what is there to do besides the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland? Well, hey, the Christmas Story House. Let's go see it. So you're talking to people who are having a great time. They're having, they're trying to have as good a time as you can have in Cleveland. <laughs> let's be honest here. So make it a, make it a good time. Make it something where they may spend their dollars. It's tourism. It's that's all it was. It's public relations, and I thought I was doing a pretty good job, and I was getting that backbone of doing it and getting a little bit of cajones uh, cojones in speaking in front of audiences to the point where at that same time, uh, my, my old friend, former coworker and former friend Chuck booms, he said, uh, tone, uh, I'm doing a show at the, the Cleveland improv. And I know I've asked you before, if you want to do a guest set and start doing comedy, you're funny, you got good timing, you know? And I'm like, yes, I'm ready. Now I had no material, but I said I was ready and I wanted to push myself. So I was listening to a lot of Louie, a lot of Bill Hicks, and uh, it, probably my early sets were very Bill Hicks and Louie-like. And it was like that for, I would say, the first year. So the first time I got on stage was—and the reason I'm doing this podcast, of course, being the 10-year anniversary of me doing stand-up—the first time I stepped on stage was at the Cleveland Improv, which is now the Funny Bone— on January 31st, 2014. And I actually wrote an article on my blog. And I want to I want to read a little bit of it. I'm, I'm going to try not to bore you folks, but I I, I want to get into the minutia of how I was doing stand up in those days as opposed to what I'm doing now and why I don't do it as often as I did in the early days. So on my old blog Found this. I don't know how I. this is still up. It's probably pretty cringe, but I'm going to probably delete some of these. Stealth delete. Uh, So I I called it stage present. Get it? Play on words. I said, I did it. After years of admiring stand-up comedians from afar, after nearly a decade of saying I wanted to give it a whirl, after years of friends and colleagues and fellow comics urging me to try it, well, I did it. I finally did it. There really is nothing like being up on stage performing comedy. I performed in musical theater since I was a preteen, and I've been in in a couple of bands, but at least I had props, instruments, and other people to help the process. This was just me on stage with a microphone and about a dozen lights beating down on me. I came up with a laundry list of topics to riff on, so the difficult part was cutting it down to five minutes from about 25. Now, I want to stop myself there. I did not have 25 minutes. I had 25 minutes of diarrhea, diarrhea, on uh, not diet, not literal, but figurative. It was a diarrhea of words of just, Oh, this could be funny. I could do this. And then as I looked back on some of my early material and realizing, yeah, there were kind of takeoffs, I guess it was, you hear a bit from a comedian that you like, and you took a little bit of their concept. You tried making it your own, but clearly was very lifted or it was, what do they call it? Um, that, that Amy Schumer, that they were saying that there was just there, like parallel thinking, I believe. So, uh, no, I did not have 25 minutes. I ended up doing, well, I'll get into it here. I ended up going longer than I thought I was supposed to, but I got some laughs and compliments. Though I had my share of flaws, even the club owner said my first time was not too bad. And the club owner at the time, Lee Herlands, who lives in New Jersey now, he didn't know it was my first time on stage. He thought I'd probably been plugging away maybe six months. Doing whatever he didn't realize that was my first time on stage, and he is a brutally honest guy. He went up to another comic who was also doing his first time and said, "You are terrible. I never want to see you on this stage again." Points to me and says, "You, not too bad." He says, "You want to come in and uh, and go through what was go you know what you did? I got every- I tape everything. So if you want to go over some pointers and some tags, something to improve your presence, everything like come on by. I never took him up on it." because he's not really a comedian. (laughs) Later, my buddies toasted me at a nearby pub that has never happened before, not even on my birthday. January 31st, 2014 was my taste of cloud nine. It's been a difficult four. Oh, oh, here we go. Here's here's the cringe for me that I kind of already mentioned. It's been a difficult four months for me. I was let go from a radio station due to a double standard. Didn't get the jobs I interviewed for for reasons I couldn't control. My podcast is coming to an end again, out of my control. That was me on Yahoo Sports Radio, and one of my one of my friends who I co-hosted the show with uh, didn't realize he had had. I shouldn't I shouldn't say this because he he might even be listening to this, but. I didn't realize that he was bipolar, and he was off his medication, and he lashes out. And he lashed out on one of the bosses, and they said, we're pulling your podcast. Goodbye. Uh, uh, um, So when I was approached to uh, be opening for Chuck Booms at the Improv, I was both scared and intrigued. He asked me before, and I wasn't ready, but it was different this time around. Not that I need another challenge in my life, but I was ready to tackle this one. When jotting down material along with what I wore on stage, I made sure to stay true to who I am. I'm not a phony. I don't have a gimmick. I wore a flannel shirt and jeans and talked about stuff that pisses me off, because that's what I know best. It was definitely an experience that I will always treasure. I mean, whose first foray into stand-up comedy begins on one of the most iconic venues for comedy in the country? So I did it. Will I give it another go? Absolutely. I want to tell you about my second time I did stand-up. So... Uh, again, my work hours were very different in those days. And I was working, I was off on days that normal people are working and I was working days that normal people are off. My second time I thought, Hey, you know what? I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to go to an open mic. I looked up an open mic. There's a local bar and I go up and I did the same material that I did on that improv stage thinking this went over so well in front of this audience that I'm going to do it here, and I'm in front of a lot of comics and other people, and it's just going to kill. I went up there, I got lighted at two minutes. I was bombing beyond belief. I bombed so much, I never wanted to do stand-up ever, ever, ever again. So what made me, again, want to do it? I was going through a breakup. And again, a lot of people get into comedy because they're going through some kind of trauma in their life. And mine was, I was uh, going through a breakup and I wanted my girlfriend at the time to impress, to be impressed by me. She's never seen me do stand-up, by the way. Uh, not that I think about her at all, but we've been broken up now 10 years, 2014. So after the breakup, I needed some kind of coping mechanism that didn't involve alcohol. So I decided, you know what? Maybe I should check it out. So there were two people who encouraged me truly to continue doing stand-up. One of them weirdly enough, was Kevin Pollack. Now, you know, Kevin Pollock, the actor, the impressionist, he does the great Peter Falk impression where he does the He, he moves the, eye, the glass, the fake glass eye around a little bit. And there's been in so many movies, the, uh, you know, was it the whole nine yards and, uh, Wayne's world too. I mean, Kevin is a is a household name for a lot of people and uh, he was doing his podcast at the time, I believe, and he was doing stand-up, and he came through town. <clears throat> he didn't have to talk to me as long as he did, because I told him, I said, you know, I just started doing stand-up. I don't know if I want to do it again. I don't remember what he said to me, but it was captive enough where I'm looking at people behind me going like, Come on, I want to meet this guy, get a picture with him, and he's giving me pointers and stuff. I'm like, Kevin Pollack is actually taking time after a show with a long line of people who want to meet him to talk to me and encourage me to continue doing stand-up. And then about a month later, I saw the gentleman by the name of the Reverend Bob Levy. Now I've known Bob uh, on uh, Howard Stern. He would go on Opie and Anthony and I've, I had heard of him and I've admired him I've seen him on a lot of the Howard Stern roast of Daniel Carver and Artie and everything. And, uh, so he happened to be in town. And I didn't realize that the reason he was in town, he was in town a lot was his wife at the time, Christine was, uh, from Cleveland. And so they would be kind of not by coastal, unless you want to count Cleveland as the North coast right up on the lake, but they would go back and forth from Jersey to Cleveland. So he was in town a lot and they were doing an amateur contest the week after. So I got to see Bob talk to him. He gave me his business card. He says, yeah, keep, keep in touch brother. You know, uh, you know, uh, you go on stage. You're gonna, you're gonna fucking love it, man. It's gonna be fantastic. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll be addicted. You'll never want to do, do anything else but doing stand up. And I'm like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I had some material that I had written down, just some ideas, and shaped it up, and entered the amateur contest. And I was well enough that first night that I got passed to the next round, and then the next round, and the next round. Then I made it to the finals. And I was the runner up and I entered four of those contests and I was the runner up in all four comedy contests. So I was the present day Buffalo Bills. (laughs) Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. But it gave me an opportunity to start meeting a bunch of comics. So in my early days, I I have a whole list of comics that I've worked with. Now, the first comedian that I opened for is a guy who, he was a local comic from, his name was Lionel Hamilton, and he was a local Akron, Ohio comic that, uh, he passed away uh, several years ago, sadly, and he would drive a Wonder Bread truck during the day and do stand-up at night. And it's a stupid old street joke, yet I still love it. And Lionel would end his set, every set, every time he's doing stand-up, whether he's doing the check spot on the amateur night, which is what this night was, or his headlining 45, he would be up there and telling this joke. And here was the joke. Two guys are walking and dragging their back, their right leg behind them down the street, and they're they're uh, walking towards each other. And the one guy says, hey man, what happened to you? And he says, Vietnam. 1968, shot in the leg. I have no feeling in this. What about you? The other guy says, dog shit, two blocks back. Again, stupid joke, but I still love the joke. And he was that was the first ever comic that I quote unquote opened for as a comedian and not somebody I was just doing a guest set at the Cleveland Improv 10 years ago. So I have had an opportunity. uh, The first person who gave me my first paid gig was Bob Levy. And then I worked with Bonnie McFarlane. Uh, so I, I've got the whole list here. Chuck Booms, Don Jameson. Don Jameson. this is a fun story. Don Jameson who uh, uh, I've gotten to know and actually become friends with. Actually, you know what? Let me play a clip from Don Jameson.
4: I'll say this also, man. Whatever kind of uh, hard rock or metal or rock or even any music, if there's fans of other music here, just embrace it, right? you got to embrace whatever you like. If you like hair metal, if you like doom metal, if you like stoner metal, thrash metal, black metal, death metal, Norwegian church-burning symphonic, gender-fluid country and western metal. Just love it. I'll say this right here, and I don't care who knows it. I love the band Winger. That's right. I love the band Winger. You know why? Because they had a hit song called She's Only 17. When you can have a number one song about being a pedophile, that's a crazy fucking band right there. Kip Winger is the original R. Kelly. That's all I'm saying.
1: So, I, I met Don before this uh, at, I saw also at the Cleveland Improv, but <clears throat> I was hanging out with them backstage at the concert festival. It's called Sonic Temple now, but it was Rock on the Range. And I was with him and Jim Florentine. And uh, I forgot who else was there. That was when I met Rob Schneider. And I could tell what was going on. And Don comes up to me and says, Hey, Tony, you want a beer? And I'm like, If Don Jameson is offering a beer, what is this? And sure enough, it is a. <laughs> a cup of his urine. I'm like, ooh, nice and warm. It's German, right? And he he said, you held a cup of my own piss. Next time I'm in your area, I want you opening for me. And he told the, the comedy club owner, says, Pete, when I come to town, I want Tony opening for me. And he kept true to it. So that's why I've always been really thankful for, uh, for what Don is doing. And then again, getting a chance to know him over the years and, and working with him a number of times. And I always say this about Don Jameson. Don is one of those guys that I want young comics to go watch him because he has a rhythm and a rhythm where it's just like it's a joke and come on, just keep going. Just it's musical. For a guy who does music shows and is a huge music fan and he goes out on tour with these bands, his act is musical. In fact, I told him that on a podcast we did back, I think, about, about eight months ago. I said, what I always admired about you is that you have a timing that's like a musician as opposed to a normal comedian. And that, I think he t- took to that well. And then uh, Jim Florentine, who I've... Uh, it, it, this is one of those cool things, those feathering your cap in your first year of doing stand-up is working with Jim and him remembering your name. And not only that, it's not just Tony. It's Tony Mazur, not Mazure. Not he actually said my name properly. Because he actually took the time to, to know that, and that's why I've always uh, I've always enjoyed Jim. I'll play a little clip from Jim Florentine. Why not? Um, if I can find it, yellow. What happened?
3: And the thing is, no matter like if you have to keep in touch with your ex if you got kids, no matter what, that uh, that new person always thinks you're gonna get back together with them. They got it in the back of their mind, no matter how much you hate each other. I remember it's like eleven o'clock on a Tuesday night. My ex wife texts me. And the new girlfriend's over there. She's like, why is your wife, ex-wife texting you at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night? I go, yeah, because my kid wants to play in this new basketball league. She just wanted to make sure I could sign him up. I go, She's like, yeah, right. I go, yeah, look at the text. I show it to her. She goes, well, why is there a heart at the end of the text? I go, because she wants me to pay for it. That's why, you know.
4: <laughs> yeah, you
3: know how that works. Remember when you want to go to Bahamas, you text me, you put a heart at the end, I pay for that? Yeah, yeah, there
1: you go. So just getting a chance to know Jim has just been, it's been really cool. He's been on this show a number of times as well. Uh, Going to a Super Bowl party this weekend when I'm uh, recording this podcast. I'll probably see Don there as well. Uh, But those early, like that first year of people that, I, I watched them on TV. I listened to them on albums. I've heard them on radio shows as being guests and then eventually hosting their own podcast. And now I'm working with them. It was so surreal in those early days. So yeah, a couple of comics, Bob Levy, Bonnie McFarlane, Rich Voss's wife, uh, and also very funny, uh, Chuck Booms, Don Jameson, Uh, Dustin Diamond. Yes, Dustin was um, a—in his final couple of years, I got to work with Dustin a number of times. Got to be actually pretty friendly with him, and he was a really cool, very misunderstood guy. Um, Wouldn't you be—wouldn't you have a little bit of— uh, animosity. Wouldn't you have a little bit of uh, th- that kind of feeling? Is that you were the goofy kid on a show with male and female models <laughs> in the early '90s, and you're goofy screech with your dumb one-liners, and uh, you kind of eh, you kind of look kind of goofy You're the awkward Jewish kid, and he really it, it had a profound effect on him that he always kept with that his whole basically his whole career. Culminating about 10 years after, say, by the bell, he was on that celebrity boxing against Horshack. And Horshack even said, like, hey, please don't hit me in the face. And what does is, what is Dustin do? He just beats the shit out of him in the face. Um, but in his final couple of years, of course, he went to, went to jail over the, the stabbing thing. But he was protecting his wife from some drunk asshole at a bar on Christmas so he just really was, he was done with the Hollywood thing, he just wanted to make enough money to live a simple life, and then he has lung cancer, he didn't even smoke, did a lot of other things with me, I'll tell you that much, but wasn't cigarettes, <laughs> so that was, that was a really sad loss, um, yeah, uh, Rich Voss worked with uh, local guy Mike Polk here, Tammy Pescatelli, this was cool, I worked with uh, both uh, Roz from Night Court And Skippy Handelman of Family Ties, Mark Price and Marsha Warfield, and that was so cool. Honestly, it was that was one of the coolest weekends because Marsha Warfield hadn't done stand up in twenty years. She had had an accident. She went away for a little bit. She was struggling. I I believe she was obviously a lesbian. She's out now, and she comes out on tour, and she is a murderer on stage. I'm like, she is outstanding. I was, I was, absolute huge respect for Marsha Warfield, even if I don't think that night court is all that good nowadays. Uh, worked with Sam Tripley, Claude Stewart, who was on that 70s show, have also been friends with. Angel Salazar, the Check It Out guy, he, he claims to have been at the final Bill Hicks show that he told me. He's like, Oh man, I was there. I was there when, uh, uh, I saw Bill Hicks and he collapsed on stage. And I, I don't believe you, but you, know, you never know. Um, yeah, got, uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, there's a, like a bunch of other people that I've, I've worked with as well. I'm just going through these names of people that nobody really knows. Dave Landau got to be friends with Dave. Actually, I have a clip from Dave I'll play for you. Passed
0: out in a toga and a Burger King crown. <laughs> waiting for a stop sign to turn green. <laughs> I was sitting there looking at the light, so I thought, and I was like, these are timed ridiculous. I'm gonna snort some ketamine. Ketamine is now used to treat depression, but in 1999, it was a very uh, popular rave drug. I was using it to treat depression, because I am a pioneer. So I pulled out a road (laughs) map, snorted it, and immediately the animal tranquilizer did not give me a bit of pep. It did quite the opposite. (laughs) And I woke up to a cop banging my window. I roll it down, and I'm like, Hey. And he goes, what's going on here? And I said, my car stalled. And he said, it's running. And I said, it does that. And he goes, do you know how long you've been asleep for? And I said, do you know how long I've been asleep for? He goes, I do, an hour and a half. I said, how do you know that? And he goes, because you are in front of the police station and we've been watching you from that window and I was like son of a gun and he arrested me and that was the first time I was not walked to a squad car I was just brought right into the police station for the most convenient arrest of all time.
1: so I've worked with Dave and become friends with him and I, he I've said it on a number of podcasts before, but I've always, always respected his hustle, respected his loyalty to comedy clubs that gave him his first opportunity. Some small town like Council Bluffs Comedy Club, C- Cuyahoga Falls Comedy Club, all of these tiny little places that when he became I don't want to say Dave's a household name, but he's very popular. And yet he would still take pay cuts because of the people who gave him a chance early on in his career and always, always respected him for that. I've worked with Dave a bunch of times where he's doing the check spot on the amateur night or it's a Wednesday night, a Tuesday, random Tuesday at a bowling alley. And there's five people there. And Dave Landau is crushing it on stage. Those five people came away really Really happy, really. They thought it was really funny. They met him, took pictures afterward. And then a couple of years later, he ends up getting on Anthony Cumia's show. And then he goes over to Steven Crowder's show. He's on Louder with Crowder, and now he's on um, The Blaze. There was a big falling out about a year ago. But uh, he's on The Blaze. He does this show called Normal World. But when he was on Crowder, and I went to go see him again, this is a guy that he did the check spot with five people in the audience. And now it's five sold out shows at a comedy club and a line out the door wrapped around the building to get a picture with Dave Landau. And I'm thinking again, if you would have just went to a comedy show just four years earlier, you wouldn't have had to wait an hour to meet him. But I'm, I was extremely happy for him and he's always been very helpful. He's put in good words for me and uh, I, I, I couldn't be happier for his success. Um, try to see other comics that I've worked with. And Sam Tripoli was great. Todd Bridges, oof, Todd Bridges. That's a, that's a comic that he's not really much of a comic, but had the awareness to go on stage, just like what Rob Schneider does, where he goes up there and says, you can do it. And then every, and then you can actually go and check out a Rob Schneider show. He's not the guy from the water boy. And Todd Bridges did that. And he goes on stage and says, all right, let's hear it. Let's hear it. I know I know you've been waiting for it. Ask me. Ask me a question. And everybody just says, "What you talking about, Willis?" And he says, "I don't fucking know." And everybody starts laughing, and it broke down the barrier of I'm seeing Willis from different strokes on stage right now to I'm seeing comedian Todd Bridges. <laughs> it was it was brilliant. It was brilliant. It was great and I was also drinking and doing shots with him. And I asked him, I said, I, I thought you're sober. He's like, only off of Coke. <laughs> so he'll do everything else. Uh, it's, like the, it's like the California sober, but I, I don't know. Is this, what is this, Vegas? Is this Studio 54 sober? I don't know. There's been a bunch of other. Kevin Brennan worked with, Ron Jeremy. That's a story in and of itself. Brett Ernst, Carlos Mencia, Aaron Berg, Pat Dixon, Kate Quigley. Uh, The Immortal Ray DeVito, uh, Louis J. Gomez, uh, and countless others that I've worked with. And it was so cool to do that and be a part of this. But here's the turn for me when it came to stand-up, is when I stopped loving comedy and realized what it was for me. In the early days, so from 2014 to 2016, comedy was a nice refuge to get away from the trials and tribulations of daily life, which were I'm in a loveless relationship or I'm dating a crazy woman. So my personal life is a mess. My professional life is a mess. I'm working part-time job to part-time job. I was DJing at Applebee's, not kidding, DJing at gay bars, DJing at, at very urban bars, um, making 65 bucks a night. And I would drive all over town with this equipment in my 2008 Chevy Cobalt. And, uh, I would, I would waste half of what I made that night just on gas alone. And then there'd be places that would not, pay, uh, would not feed me. So I would get a pizza or a sandwich, which was taken, I uh, basically made 10 bucks a night, 10 bucks a night to DJ. And I was doing that. And so I don't know what I'm doing with my career. So that gave me a little bit of fuel to eventually go on stage and, and use that and get angry about something and it fired me up. It was something that again, I'm not an alcoholic, not a drug user. I do not have an addictive personality, so I don't have something that is a is a crutch to that level that I would use stand up and fall into it, but it was a nice motivation. However, by 2017, I'm working morning radio for the last couple of years which takes away from going to the sad open mics with other comedians at night, where they don't start the open mic until 10.30, and I have to be at work at 4.30. Yeah, it doesn't really work out too well, and I'm not a very good napper either, so I'm not going to nap all day so I can stay up all night and do comedy, do five minutes of comedy in front of apathetic comedian audiences where they're just looking at their phone because they either don't like me or don't know me. And that's just the way it is with these open mics. Not very supportive, especially in my area, but I'll get to that in a little bit. Also, one thing is my career trajectory was going in a very good direction that I've got a job. I'm in the field that I truly was. It's like what Deion Sanders always said about that football was his wife but baseball was his mistress. And that's kind of what I used stand-up comedy was. It was a glorified hobby for me, but ultimately broadcasting, whether it is regular radio at the time or what I'm doing now in podcasting, is more of what I'm passionate about. I'm more passionate doing what I'm doing right now as opposed to, I don't know, going on stage at 10.30 p.m., doing five minutes of new jokes that don't get laughs. So, and then eventually I ended up meeting a, a girl who's my now wife and things were going so well. So I can't really go on stage and complain about my girlfriend because I had nothing to complain about. Everything was great. Everything's still great. In fact, I go on stage and actually and very pro marriage, <laughs> very different from what you hear like, Oh, you know, the old ball and chain. And yeah, no, I don't, I don't believe that. Um, so my professional life is going great. My personal life is going great. And it's hard to really motivate myself to go on stage to do a bunch of stuff that uh, just start yelling about something that's bothering me. It almost seems very privileged, if you will. So I kind of was having a little bit of that love-hate relationship with doing stand-up. At the same time, in the since I've been doing comedy, I've always been late to everything, but it's mainly more so my age and not just being late to the game, period. The days of being in the radio industry that I wanted to be in were gone by the time I got into it. The days of, hey, let's have conversations, we'll talk about anything, we'll shoot the shit, we'll do this, this, and this. By the the time I got into radio, 2006, 2007, is when you were seeing large FCC crackdowns of content, of comedy, of all of that, and it just became very bland, very boring, and very quick. So the radio I was trying to chase was already gone. By the time I got into stand-up, the days of, you know, fun-loving drunk comedians was going away. And instead, I had a whole influx of bearded, hipster, flannel-wearing, uh, self-loathing white comedians talk about how they're, uh, they apologize for being white. That's what happened. 2014, I was doing a lot of gigs and I'm just, you know, here's me. I'm going up there and just trying to set the world ablaze. And they're up there going, "So I'm white, and I apologize for that, and uh, I'm sorry to all the black people that the uh, as a point of privilege." Ugh. And then, and then a lot of the trans stuff was going on too, and the politically correct. And then they started. To, so if you made a trans joke, and which I was doing in 2016, 2017, and they're like, "You only have like one joke." It's, only, it's the same joke over and over again. Well, it's, at least it's one more than what you have. I, I just started noticing a lot of the PC stuff, or is what we now call woke comedy, which woke comedy, the liberal comedy, in my opinion, is not comedy. I've played, I played last week on the, the podcast, the Mark Marin clip, where his joke is to, uh, and his material is ripping on comics who say they can't say whatever they want on stage without the consequences. Yeah, that's not a joke. That's not good material. And I start really just, over time, I start disliking comedians. Now, I've mentioned comedians who I do like, but they've bucked the trend. Or maybe I'm in a different situation where I'm located, where a lot of comics are just a bunch of losers. And when I say that, I don't have anything in common with these people. I go on stage, the reason I do an open mic is because I have a gig coming up that I'm getting paid for, and I'm working some material out. It's like, hey, I have a, I I don't know, let's say I have a basketball tournament. It'd probably be a good idea if I go to the gym and shoot around a little bit. I don't want to go to the basketball tournament and say, I haven't picked up a basketball in two years. You want to get ready a little bit, so that's why I do open mics. I don't do them as a hang. And you realize a lot of comics love doing open mics because they're socially awkward people and they're surrounded by other socially awkward people. So this is their friend group. I'm, I may have my quirks. I may be socially awkward in some ways, but not to this level with comedians where I don't have a lot in common with them. They're not sports fans. They're not, uh, they, they, a lot of them, they just, they talk about smoking pot and they're vaping all day. And they like Marvel and Star Wars. And I can't have conversations with these people. And I've tried. I've tried. I just don't have much in common. And I also don't like being around comedians who think that they know what's going on, that they're the the truth sayers on uh, on this whole journey that the, oh, yes, we are the people that, see, listen to us. That's what happened. See, everyone listened to Carlin and Richard Pryor, but then even before then, you would listen to the humorist of the day. Yeah, I don't listen to the humorist of today because they don't have the lived experience. It's why I don't have a lot of respect for the teaching industry. Whoa, what are you talking about, Tony? Well, I'll tell you. The teaching industry, you have people, you have teachers who went to preschool, kindergarten, Went all the way elementary school, middle school, high school, then went to college, then went to grad school, and then started teaching and taught for 25, 30, 35 years. So you've basically spent 55 to 60 years in a classroom. You have no lived experience other than you may have folded clothes at a Kohl's when you were 17 years old. But outside of that, your perspective on life is four walls, and one of those walls is taken up by windows and the other is a dry erase board or a chalkboard. So I don't want to be lectured to by people who spend their whole lives around young children, trying to indoctrinate them. And I notice that with comedians. Sure. Some of them have day jobs, but they want to be, they're the people who want to tell us that I know the way I know the path forward. I'm the guy who, see, I'm the one who will tell my truth and everything. And I'm just thinking to myself, You're a graphic designer who works from home. You smoke pot all day. You play Pokemon Go. You have a Nintendo Switch and you do that and you put your video game headset on and spend 13 hours a day playing video games when you're not doing a sad open mic at a corner bar drinking a Pabst Blue Ribbon. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a lot of animosity. And that's why when I do these, and the reason I don't do a lot of open mics is not even just the time of day, that I, I have to schlep over there and do this. But it's also, I'm kind of by myself. I don't talk. I don't associate with people that I just don't have anything in common with them. It's a w- way different world. And, I, and I'm and i experiencing that right now in real time of being a blue collar guy who left a white collar industry. I was in radio. I was in broadcasting. I, I still know a lot of broadcasters, but I also am around people that Bring bring their lunch pail to work. Let's just say, and you see the disparity and how different we are and how classist we are as a people. And I think comedians want to be a part of that upper echelon class of see we're the we're the truth sayers and we are the people that because honestly I do believe standup comedy is a high form of art. You can use it as a form of karaoke in that you memorize your material and you can just go on stage and just plug and play. It's okay. But it, there is an art form because you have to balance out your stage presence. You, after all, you are on a stage. You have a full stage in front of you. You may as well use it. That's the advice I heard from Andrew Dice Clay. Dice said that if you're up on stage, that is your stage. It's no one else's stage, not even the comedy club stage. It's your stage and you take ownership of it. It's great advice. So that's why when I'm up there, I try to use the stage and either talk to people in the crowd, do some crowd work, or I'm conveying my material to the person in the back of the room or in the side of the stage, not just the three tables right in front. So it's uh, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting. And then, of course, you have to have material, and you have to find a way of making that material your own. The way I played the Norm Macdonald clip, the way I played the Bill Hicks Way I played Dave Attell. Way I played Louis C.K. What can you do to make this your own? What can I do to make a joke and come up with material that is uniquely Tony Maser? That it's not Anthony Jeselnik. It's not Shane Gillis. It's not Andrew Schultz. It's not yeah. Pick your pick. Whatever comic you like right now, Andrew Santino. Any of them. You pick it, and uh, you're just kind of a, a an offshoot of that person. I'm that's been my struggle now is that when I'm going back on stage, I'm starting to enjoy it a little bit more. So that's the other thing that being on stage and making people laugh. Some shows go better than others. Usually the early show is way better because people are aren't as drunk. They're getting ready. They want to laugh. And you got to be pretty tight with it, too, because we have a second show. We got to break the tables down and clear everything off and then get ready for show number two. And that's what keeps you going as a comedian. That's why I always love going to the second show. That's the true test of a comedian. Sure, at the 7, 30, 8 o'clock show, you'll be on your game because the audience is going to be on their game. But by the second show that's at 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, maybe the audience is a little stoned, a little drunk, a little ornery. You know, there's stuff going on in their lives that they've been dealing with. Maybe they, maybe they were on a, a good, good mood at seven o'clock, but not so much by 10. So you don't know what the comic's going through, but you also don't know what the audience is going through. So you could be going for a great comedy show, a, a, an otherworldly one, or as Patrice O'Neill would say, if I'm bombing, I'm going to take all of y'all with me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's also great advice. Um, What bothered me in the last couple of years was the fleeting feeling of getting off stage, of feeling that when I'm in the back of the room after the show and everyone says, hey, great set. Do you mean that? Or are you just saying that because it's a you're being cordial to the person who just said, hey, thanks for coming. Thanks for thanks for checking out the show that I'm in my mind going, you don't really mean that you're just saying that to be nice. Or are they being genuine? I did have a guy that I was I was ribbing him. He was a, he was a heckler. Well, I don't know. He wasn't really much of a heckler. I, I was just kind of playing with him on stage, just having some fun. Just uh, and I, I would refer to him in some of my jokes and just do some off shooting improv with him. And after the show, he gave me twenty bucks. I said, I can't take your money. He's like he already paid for the show. He's like, No, you made me a part of the show and I enjoyed it so much. I want to pay you. I'm like, All right, sure, thanks. <laughs> That twenty bucks went right to the, what a third of a tank of gas. <laughs> Didn't that that twenty dollars lasted? I would say about twelve minutes because after I left the comedy club, I'm like, oh shoot, I need gas right now. But I appreciated it. I did. I really did. Um, so you never know what audience you're going to get. I've had comics. I, I've had times where people have taken umbrage with my material. I did a gig. Maybe it was twenty. Sixteen, 20, no, you know it was twenty eighteen, and I was doing a one nighter, and these two girls, I, I was, I, I had two jokes that I was doing that they took issue with after the show, and they came up to me and they said, "We found your jokes, we found your material just very misogynist." I'm like, really? Well, what was misogynist about it? And, and they said, "Well, you're ripping on women for this." And I said, "No, no, no. If you listen to the bit, I'm ripping on myself. I don't even remember what the bit was." in question, but I remembered how I got out of it is by saying, no, 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 no. You misunderstood. The, uh, the bit is I'm making fun of myself for doing whatever. and I'm like, okay, but then you had this one. I'm like, no, no, no. See, there's more nuance to that one that just because you didn't get it didn't mean everybody else also didn't get it. You're, and then what happened is I see both of them on their knees in the bathroom, snorting cocaine off a toilet seat. And I'm looking going, it's eleven o'clock on a Tuesday. And this is like a Billy Joel song right now. It's eleven o'clock on a Tuesday. Got my cocaine for free. I was sitting on the bowl and smoking some bowl. I don't know. So I I have a love hate relationship with stand up. But doing ten years of this. Because that's why I said it's not 10 consecutive years. There's a lot of comedians that get really offended by that, by saying, well, you can't call yourself a comedian because you don't go up every night. Okay, then don't call me a comedian then. Fine. Call me, call me a, uh, <clears throat> like, it's just a comedy fan. Call me a comedy dabbler, if you will. Don't call me a comedian then. If, you, if you're so offended that I don't go on stage seven nights a week doing three sets a night, I don't love it that much. I don't, I'm not obsessed with com- comedy that much, and, and I'll be honest here, <clears throat> and it's kind of the way with my podcast, too. I was a lot more jokey. I was a lot more fun and in better spirits before COVID, <clears throat> where they say that uh, guys, how many times a day they think about the Roman Empire? Well, you know what my Roman Empire is? The COVID lockdowns and the mandates. I think about that every day because that really changed my mindset of not just how I felt about government officials and figures, but about my fellow man, how we were so apt to shutting everything down because of what, because of a cold, what what amounted to be a cold. And I was really disappointed in comedians. Wouldn't you think comedians, a lot of them who claimed to have been fairly libertarian, free speech, they were the ones going, you shouldn't be doing, I heard that uh, Chad Prather's doing a comedy show in uh, down in Mississippi. That's dangerous. That's a super spreader event. Oh, so-and-so is performing at Sturgis like Smash Mouth was. Uh, how dare you? That's a super spreader. You will never get out of this pandemic and you're not wearing your mask properly. And you <clears throat> and I realized ever since then, I'm not as funny as I want to be. I would like to be funnier. I would like to look at the world and do podcasting and just joke all day. Just do comedy podcasting. That's why I'm not as, I don't care as much about this dabbleverse stuff. All the, um, you know, the MLC, Kevin Brennan, Stuttering John, all of this. I'm not, I don't find it as entertaining because I don't like hate listening to things anymore. I love, I I like listening to things I enjoy and not things I hate just to fuel me. I have enough stuff going on in my life. We've had enough stuff happening in our society for me to go, oh, I'm going to hate listen to this thing. Now, nah, I don't, I, I, if I want to hate watch anything, it would be CNN. It'd be MSNBC. It'd be something like that. So I don't, I don't feel that way anymore. I would love to be more sing-songy and jokey. I just don't feel as funny as I used to be, but there's a reason for it. Uh, I, I'm trying to keep my eye on the prize right now. I'm trying to keep uh, not not to get too distracted. Yeah, when you, when if you hang out with me, I rarely talk politics in person. Maybe with a couple of people, but I know my audience. If I'm around <clears throat> mixed audience, I'm not gonna, and especially after a couple of drinks, I'm not gonna sit there and talk about abortion. I'm gonna talk. I'm gonna talk about. Uh, i talk about Norm Macdonald. I'll have fun. I just try not to be too distracted with all this other stuff. So. I don't know, 10 years of doing stand-up, again, not ten, 10 consecutive years, there was the COVID shutdowns that we couldn't do stand-up, although I was doing a little bit more stand-up at the end of 2020, when a lot of comics were, were deathly afraid of being in a comedy club, um, but uh, I'll probably do some more gigs this year, uh, whether paid or open mic or w- whatever, I'll do more gigs, I'll continue doing it because I like having that option that if something were to happen in my personal or professional life, I know that that night I can go on a comedy stage and vent about it. When I got let go from the radio station nearly two years ago, I didn't go on stage that night, mainly because I was recovering from, I just had surgery and I had kidney stones and a couple of other health issues at that time. But I had an option. If I wanted to go on a comedy stage, I can go anywhere and do it and vent about it. I like having that option and staying fresh. So here's to 10 years of me here on this podcast, uh, doing this, uh, by the way, this podcast celebrating three years. So I've been doing this three years now. We are in year number four. So a lot of you have been listening from the beginning. Some of you have uh, dropped off. Some of you have uh, returned. Some of you uh, are newbies. So I appreciate you folks listening and uh, checking out my content. If you want more content, go to the Check Your Brain podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Maser. I have a three, five, and ten dollar tier if you are interested, where I talk about other things, not just comedy, not just politics, not just cultural stuff, but all of that here on that uh, on that podcast. So I appreciate you uh, for listening to the show today. And this week I'll be back with you with another free episode of the Check Your Brain podcast coming up next Wednesday. Uh, I will be, I'm hoping to do some podcasting when I'm in Atlantic city, staying at the Borgata hotel, the casino. So I'm not going to tell you which room if you happen to listen to this, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to do some videos, some streaming and, uh, make it like a little bit of a content house over at the Borgata coming up this weekend in the old AC in NJ. So thanks everybody for listening. And, uh, yeah, again, be back with you next week another episode, a fresh episode of the Check Your Brain podcast. Bye, everyone.